Well, well welcome to uh, our last uh, session for this afternoon. And uh, what I'm going to, you know, remember our whole theme is what is it that helps make young people resilient, able to resist the temptations and all the things that drift them in life. And uh, I want to talk about religion, which seems like a reasonable thing to do on a Sabbath afternoon, right? So religion. Now, um, I'm a child of the 1960s, uh, older than most of you here, except a couple. And, um, and, and I have served on grant review committees uh, for the National Institutes of Health since about 1976. In fact, uh, last year I heard from the ethics uh, people at the National Institute of Health telling me that I had served one more year than was ethically allowed. Well, you know, how do I know? I don't keep track. You guys invite me. So I'm banned for the rest of my life, uh, seriously, from serving on National Institutes of Health Grant Review Committee because they only allow you to serve so many years and I served more than I should have. So now I'm serving on the Centers for Disease Control Grant Review Committee that we meet next month in Atlanta. Uh, but one of the fascinating things that I, that, that, that I have seen over my uh, you know, 40 years of, of doing this, uh, do you rem some of you, or none of you, Gary might remember a headline in the 1960s in Time Magazine. God is dead. All right, that was a headline. All right. Well, um, there was a, a researcher by the name of Rodney Stark, a very famous sociologist that I read in graduate school. He's about, about uh, 10 years older than I am, in his 70s now. And um, he had done a longitudinal study in San Francisco of delinquency. And he was a good statistician, a good empiricist. And he found that young people who were involved in their, in their church even if they were from bad neighborhoods, there was less delinquency, and they're more likely to stay in school. And he said, oh, this means nothing. Um, God's dead. This just means that uh, their parents watch them more. There's no, nothing here, really. Well, he kept doing more and more studies, and he kept finding faith, religion made a difference. And actually, about 15 years ago, he became a devout Christian. He said, something is here that I am missing. Something is here. It isn't just an artifact of parental supervision. It's just not some variable that you know, can be explained away. He said, there's something real in faith. And uh, he wrote a book uh, called the, uh, the Rise and Triumph of Christianity. It was published about 10 years ago, Rodney Stark. And um, he really argued that Christianity emerged as a triumphant religion in the Roman Empire because it did a number of things, most of which we talked about this morning. You know, in many pagan philosophies, including really the Old Testament Jewish approach, was that if you got sick, you had offended the gods. Remember uh, what Jesus' disciples said to him when the man at the pool of Bethesda, what, what sin did he commit or his parents? Remember that? Well, Jesus said, no. You know, it's just being in this world. You know, it's just being in this world is why we get sick. You know, and sometimes we can think like that. A dear friends of ours who are older at Andrews, um, the husband uh, got, uh, got um, uh, pancreatic cancer. And you know what some of the people in the church asked her? Where'd you feed him? Don't do that. Don't ever do that. You know, Jesus said, it's not the sin he committed. It's not his parents. It's living in this world. But in the early days, when the pagans fled, when the plague hit the cities of Rome, the Christians stayed. The Christians cared for the sick. The Christians prayed with the sick. The Christians gave food and water to the sick. You know, what? Uh, during the plague, during epidemics, from influenza to the bubonic plague, a lot of deaths don't occur from the disease, but from dehydration and starvation. You don't drink, you don't eat, you die. 
Christians fed and they bathed and they gave water to the sick. And the triumph of Christianity, Rodney Stark argues, is really from those early days of caring for those that the pagans ignored. So how could you tell they were Christians? By what they did for the community. So faith is really important. Now, I don't know if you all have know or have heard of David Williams. Anyone have heard of David Williams? A very famous Harvard sociologist who's a Seventh-day Adventist. David Williams played a major role in turning around how social sciences, behavioral sciences, look at faith and look at religion. Study after study of his around the world show that faith is protective, that faith makes a difference. It's not a statistical artifact, but a belief in God, an active devotional life. You make better cognitive choices, you make better rational choices, better behavioral choices. You don't get in trouble. A lot less likely. Faith makes a difference. So you can look up David Williams. And again, Harvard sociologist, David's made looking at religion and sociology respectable again. And every time I do grant reviews for the federal government, there's always proposals to look at the role of the faith community in providing service learning opportunities, improving the community, and the role of faith in protection, the role of faith in recovery. So it's, 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 it's now a, thanks I think to David Williams, it's really quite, uh, quite important. Well, we're gonna begin by looking uh, at some data, again, covering it 25 years, that Gary and I have collected uh, among Adventist colleges. And our, we're gonna look at alcohol. Remember, about 30% of, of our young people uh, used alcohol in the last year. And one of the variables we looked at, yes, Gary? Can you talk about heroin use just in, in, in church attendance? Just so all right, well, all right. This is a, I actually didn't put that slide up there because it's fascinating. Um, I had a project at the University of Miami uh, from 95 to, to um, 2001. And um, we, I wanted to look at um, faith and church attendance among street heroin users. Um, who would have thought? You know, that one should look at religion among people who are injecting drugs three times a day on the streets of Miami. Anyone here from Miami? Live in Miami? All right, I lived there 13 years. I'm still an adjunct professor there. And, um, you know, the, uh, the National Institute of Health was just kind of beginning to say, all right, yes, we should look at religion, sure. I add the question. So we add the questions about do you go to church, how important is religion in your life, your belief in God and your faith. And uh, we discovered that... Uh, about a third of the street drug users injecting drugs three times a day went to church every week. Who would have thought? Now, there are some interesting differences between those who went to church and those who did not. Now, in ways that might surprise you, the street injecting drug users who went regularly to church were three times more likely to clean their needles before they shared them. All right, why is that important? What does that mean, what I just said? Yeah, they, they were, she, you know, Phyllis is exactly right. They were thinking of others. In other words, when they cleaned their needles, they weren't sharing HIV. You're exactly right. So street drug users who, um, you know, went to church, cleaned their needles before they shared them. What about violent crimes? You think the ones who went to church every week committed more or less violent crimes? A lot less. Exactly. Um, all types of crime, a lot less. Um, I never got that article published in the review because it's an incongruous thing to think of. You don't think of street drug users going to church, but about a third did on a very regular basis. And they clean their needles, a lot less crime, a lot less violence. So religion, this is what Gary is saying, a religion is protective even among those you would think it shouldn't be protective of. 
Religion is powerful. And but actually, uh, I had a research assistant there, a very fine young woman. I was very proud of her. She went from high school dropout all the way through her master's degree in the 10 years she worked for me at Miami. I was very proud of her. It actually bothered her because she lived in a high-risk neighborhood. She wondered, boy, a third of these people go to church. I wonder how many go to my church. I said, look, you know, you should be very thankful. They're hearing the gospel. You know, maybe they'll change their lives because of that. And actually, one of the best predictors of you getting off-street drug use is faith. It is religion. There's a whole special issue of the journal Drug Issues published in 2009 that's devoted to the role of faith communities in recovery. Um, Doug Longshore um, is the author of many of those articles. The faith community helps recovery. Well, that's a little bit of a sidelight, but it's really true. It's a good point. Faith, community, belief in God, even in our most awful times, has that bit of protection in our lives. You know, cl cleaning needles, uh, less violence. If you commit crimes, you shoplift, you don't mug people. You know, and again, not a good headline for the review. You know, go to church, shoplift, don't mug. I don't think that would work. All right, let me talk a little bit about, uh, but it's still a fascinating concept to me, and, and one that, you know, David Williams thinks is fascinating too. Intentionality. In the, in the social sciences, intentionality is important to us. What do you intend to be? Remember I talked about commitment? You know, if, you, if you're committed to a future, I will be a doctor, I will be a teacher, I will be a pastor. It means something. Well, your intentionality of be, remaining a Seventh-day Adventist, if you're in Adventist school, makes a difference. If you intend to remain an Adventist, only 25% drank in the last year. If you said, no, I don't intend to remain Adventist, 70% drank in the last year. Intentionality is important. Commitment to the Adventist church is important to our young people. You know, getting our young people to commit to the church is ex very protective. Huge difference. We're talking about almost three times the rate of alcohol use for those who said, I don't really intend to remain an Adventist. You know, that intentionality is crucial. While intentionality is important, religious behavior really is crucial. You know, we can talk the talk, but it's really walking the walk. Now, one of the things we, we look at in the behavioral sciences is uh, what we publicly do. What we publicly do says a lot about this because, you know, we're taking a stand. People see us. People know we're there. You know, are we going to church? Well, attend church nearly every week, used alcohol in the last year, you know, over 25 years of studies. About 23% said, look, um, I attend church every week. I drank last year. If you didn't attend church nearly every week, 72% drank in the last year. You know, the Bible says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Okay? And that's what this is saying. Now, Sabbath school is interesting because um, if you went to Sabbath school nearly every week, even lower rates of drinking, 73%. No, 43%. So Sabbath school is pretty powerful. You know, involvement in Sabbath school is really powerful. Again, this is, this is intentionality. Uh, I'm sorry, this is behavior. I intend to remain Adventist. I go to church nearly every week. I go to Sabbath school. Very protective. Strong differences in the percent that drank in the last year. Again, you can do this with tobacco, marijuana, sexual behavior. All turns out about the same. Well, private devotions are a key part of Christianity, key part of our belief system. We believe in a, in a personal prayer life. You know, we don't believe just in the ritual of going to church, saying a few prayers. Um, we can sometimes think that's hypocrisy. It really is what we say and what we believe and what we do in the privacy of our homes, our rooms. You know, Daniel, um, you know, went and, um, you know, Daniel prayed uh, quietly. We pray quietly. We pray continuously. Personal devotions are important. Well, what about personal devotions? 
personal prayer several times a week. Again, if you had uh, personal prayer seven times a week, 23% drank, 65% didn't in the last year. Read the Bible at least weekly. Again, very protective. 14% has said I read the Bible weekly, drank in the alcohol in the last week. 48% um, um, you know, did not. Um, you know, it, 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 yeah, if they, it, yeah, 48% did not. So, you know, personal devotions are very protective. You know, intentionality, I intend to be a member of this faith community, makes a real difference. I attend church, I attend Sabbath school. Personal prayer, read the Bible. So our intentions, our public behavior, our personal devotions all make a difference. Now, there's, you know, more tables and, and more data. It, there's a positive relationship between religious belief and cessation of substance use. You know, a lot of our kids experiment. You know, it, uh, Dr. Andreas, and all, my president Andrews, always says, young people make the dumbest decisions. You know, they make stupid decisions. Now, there's a number of reasons. You know, the, we're learning in, in cognitive psychology. And, and I mentioned last night, I, I have a colleague, young faculty member, who is a PhD in, in, in uh, neuropsychology. And, you know, the Supreme Court has ruled in the United States that you cannot execute someone um, for committing a crime when they're under 18. And that's based on neuroscience. You know, remember, how old did you have to be in the old te- in the, in the you know, time of Jesus? How old did you have to be to be a member of the Sanhedrin? Yeah, it was in your 30s. How about President of the United States? Your 30s, too. In the 35 or something? Well, there's a reason for this. We kind of knew it intuitively. Now we knew it neurosciencely. In other words, the brain is not finished developing in all of its neural connections until you kind of get toward 30. So even the Supreme Court has said we can't, well, I'm not real fond of capital punishment, but the Supreme Court has said we can't execute a juvenile because their brains aren't working right. Their brains aren't finished. Cognitive development. So young people make mistakes. They take a drink. They get in the wrong crowd. They make mistakes. But cessation is related to religion. Every variable that we have looked at, from family to service to mentoring to faith, is strongly related to the cessation of substance abuse. And as I noted, it's strongly related to recovery from substance abuse and doing better um, in treatment programs. You know, research later consistently says, in fact, again, the grant, well, for what, when, when I was reviewing for the National Institute of Health, I always got the religion grants. Uh, they figure, all right, give them to the guy who believes. You know, let him evaluate him. And they, and they did, so I got a lot of those grants. But consistently, if you were involved in your faith community, you actually tend to show up for your appointments in the treatment program. You're more likely to um, get a job, finish high school, have clean urines, not commit new crimes. You know, your involvement in your faith community made a difference. You know, for a number of reasons. You know, some of the explanation is sense of judgment, that almost all religions have a sense there's a judgment from Islam to, to Hinduism to Buddhism uh, to Christianity, that you know, your faith makes you behave a little bit better because there's a strong sense of accountability. You know, um, one of the strong re- recovery programs out there, Alcoholics Anonymous, has a strong sense of accountability. So we tend to not use, cease if we start, recover better if we get seriously into it, if you have a strong faith. And I've already talked about my point three, and that's when Gary brought up that we discovered street um, drug users in Miami were better, better moral street drug users if they attended church. But that also reminds us, remember, if a third of those street drug users were in church pretty much every week, 
Those of your pastors, you don't know who's in your church. You don't know who's in your church. There are people there that you would be surprised what they do during the week. Yeah, physical abusers. Yeah, one in four, that's right, about 25%. So, you know, the, the, the church is a place where sinners go. It isn't just a place for saints. It's a place we all are sinners. We all need the grace of God. We should welcome everyone to church. Again, it bothered my research assistant, a very devout Christian, that maybe in her church there were street drug users. And I said, don't be bothered. Thank God they're there. Because look, first of all, we know they're more likely to get into treatment. We know they're more likely to do better in treatment. We know even if they're not in treatment, they're behaving in a much more responsible way. They're not infecting others with HIV. They're not engaged in violent crimes. Thank God they're there. Thank God they're there, Carol. Her name is Carolyn. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I, I don't know. Now, one of the things um, we've asked over these, these 25 years of studies we've done of substance use in Adventist colleges, you know, wh wh why, wh why don't you use? You know, what's going on? You know what the number one thing is? Commitment to Jesus Christ. Consistently, year after year, it's commitment to Christ. Concern for your health is there. And that's, you know, important. And then the Adventist health message is, is really a good thing because about 44% of the kids who weren't using substances did so because they understood the health message. They understood the damage that uh, drugs do to your body. But 70% commitment to Christ. Faith and faith commitment is really crucial uh, to preventing substance use, to making healthier choices. I think lots of times, you know, um, we forget the integration of all this, that the health message and commitment to Christ really go together. And that last, you know, this is the top three. Um, you know, uh, what's the show, you know, the survey says. Um, what's the name of that show? Uh, no, no, no it's, it's a TV show. Family Feud, all right, survey shows. Well, surveys show that the best reason for not using, the top three reasons, these are the top three reasons, commitment to Christ, concern for health, not grieving your parents. These are college kids. These aren't 10-year-olds. Remember, we talked about the importance of parental bonding. Parental bonding is crucial because for a quarter of the young people, these are young adults, these are 18 to 22-year-olds mostly, that not grieving their parents is a major motivation. So that's why the health message, what Cassio has been talking about is really crucial. Our commitment to health is very protective. And that's one of the strengths, I think, of the Adventist church is how our commitment to health helps us think more clearly, helps us decide not to use substances, engage in risk behavior. You know, one of the greatest messages we have in this world is our health message. But it also always must be linked to understood that our commitment to Christ. In 2009, um, General Conference Health Ministries Department was invited to... Um, to partner with the World Health Organization in health education and prevention programs around the world. And we were the first church that the World Health Organization invited into their world headquarters and was able to meet in their boardroom to strategize and work together. And Gary and I were invited to participate. I had a, a close a colleague, friend from the University of Illinois in Chicago, and he was on sabbatical, the World Health Organization. So. Um, I got there early before our meeting and went to his office and talked to him. And the first thing he wanted to know was, he says, I've never been invited to the boardroom. How come Adventists get to go? 
And uh, so we'd be actually, he was kind of kidding. He's a very devout Catholic, goes uh, to Mass every morning, very devout man, very strong Christian. And uh, so we began talking about it. And uh, I said, well, what do people say here about why Adventists were invited? And he said, well, there's a number of reasons that I just hear informally. He says, first of all, you worship physicians. No, he didn't say that. First of all, he said that you're one, of the, the, you're one of the only, he said, only the Adventists and the Catholics are truly a great global church as a, have an integrated structure. He said, the problem with my church is that we don't really practice health very well. He said, you know, we smoke, we drink pretty heavily, and we, um, you know, we don't believe in birth control, and you do. Uh, and he says that, you know, they can't partner with us well because our, day, our core beliefs and our core practices are not consistent with the World Health Organization's mission. He said, yours are. He says, you know, we've learned here at the World Health that vegetarianism isn't a, just a healthy thing. It could save the planet. Do you know that feedlots are some of the biggest contributors to global warming? You don't want to know all the methane gas that emerges from the great feedlots of this world. It's a major source of water pollution. You know, in fact, I, uh, I chair a health department board. You know, one of the greatest uh, threats in the streams in our community are pig farms. You know, you get a rain uh, and you've just destroyed the creeks and the rivers of our southwest Michigan because pigs produce an awful lot of bad stuff. So, you know, he said your vegetarianism makes you um, really, a, you know, a, honored by the World Health Organization. He said, you, he said that you believe that Jesus heals you and you go to the best physicians. He said, other conservative churches pray and don't go to a physician. He says, you believe that, uh, that Jesus stands and guides the hands of the surgeon. And he said, it's more than true than you think. There's a picture of General Conference that, that actually has that. So, you know, our health message, our commitment to Christ are our two biggest reasons for our healthy behavior, and they go together. And there's an enormous witness by the Adventist Church being invited into the headquarters of the World Health Organization to my colleague and to the world. You know, our vegetarianism, our smoking, our health message was all a part of, of the respect that the world has for us. You know, we knew that smoking was dangerous when physicians were still advertising for cigarette companies. All right, now again, only a couple of us remember that, but I can still remember a physician uh, on an ad saying, well, for my patients who smoke, I recommend Chesterfields. You know, physicians used to advertise. Some of you look incredulous. It was true, right? We would see physicians advertise for cigarette companies, wearing their white coats and their stethoscope around their neck. So the Adventist Church and its health message has made a real difference in this world. We were the control group that showed smoking killed. You know, in the Adventist Health Study today, we're still part of, part of that process. So one of our greatest witnesses to the world is our health message. All right, so what builds resistance? The ability to overcome a bad environment in, uh, in life situations. You know, we, we began by talking about an accurate information base. Accuracy of information is crucial, but it's not enough. We've talked about family bonding. Family bonding is so important. You know, love our children. Remember, unconditional love. It bonds, it holds. Valid self-esteem, a sense of purpose. You know, young people must have a sense of purpose. The mentoring, you know, the mentoring. That uh, connection between responsible adults, parents, teachers, youth leaders, Church members, mentoring, bonding, tutoring, connecting with, know your names, all those things that we talked about. The school is community. Service. We spent a long time this morning on the role of service and protection and in developing pro-social behavior. And then faith. 
This is kind of all one package that needs to be integrated. It's kind of all one package. You know, we must have the right knowledge, the best scientific base, everything we can to strengthen our families, develop a strong sense of worth and purpose in our young people, network, know their names, connect with them, use our school as a community center in the, in the church, have the school after school activities. Again, remember responsible adults, no adults, more risk behavior. Service in the community and a strong faith, it all ties together. Service, commitment to Christ, health message, all ties together. So what kind of, you know, have we learned over the last couple of days? The church, families, community, you know, we're doing some things right. Um, you know, Ocasio talked about Pathfinder programs. Um, we have some active youth groups that make a difference. Families know the importance of dinners and bonding. We need to build on these things and strengthen them and never forget them. In dual income families with TVs and cell phones and, uh, um, you know, and iPads, it's easy to, uh, to, to, to forget. Now, tomorrow, Gary and I are going to be talking about electronic media. That's, that's tomorrow. Um, you know, at, the church activities are important. Pathfinder, scouting, youth programs, youth activities, loving, accepting home, connecting youth to teachers, staff, other adults. Remember, if you can talk to four or more adults, cut your rates in half of high-risk behavior. Engaging youth in service is very protective. Meets the needs of others, changes you. That last point really is important, I think, to remember. If you remember all these data we showed, even if you did everything right, loving family, strong parental bonding, go to church 20 times a day. Well, um, we didn't measure. No one did that, I think, in our data. Um, but remember, even in the best, you still had 14% who drank alcohol in the last year. You know? So nothing is perfect. You know, s Satan committed a sin in the most perfect environment that you could imagine, heaven. So our environments are far less than heaven, and so we know people make bad choices. So, you know, we, we generally know that in the best environment, we're still, you know, going to have some problems. But we affect the odds. We encourage better choices. You know, without substances, you make better cognitive choices. You know, date rape tends to occur um, under the influence of alcohol and other drugs. You know, teen pregnancy occurs under the influence of alcohol and other drugs. In fact, most crime occurs under the influence of alcohol and other drugs because we aren't thinking clearly when we're drinking. Our cognitive processing is slow. And I'm always amazed with my colleagues who drink. The things they do when they drink is unbelievable. And, you know, the next morning they'll feel bad. They actually won't remember they did it or said it, but they get in trouble because of it. You know, and there are unfortunately times in which I think I'm codependent because they know I'll get them back to their room without attacking them or mugging them or harassing them. You know, I unfortunately have female colleagues who will drink when I'm there because they know they're safe. So I'm not sure sometimes, you know, if I'm doing the right thing. Because, oh yeah, I can get drunk with you because you'll me back to my room and I'll be okay. No. Um, but so we, we, we know that not all things work and that think kids will get in trouble. So, you know, even if everything's protective, so we never give up. We always pray. We recognize that young people come back. You know, that our, our, our seeds planted will grow, and there's a good probability that they'll come back. One of the thing, great things about academy and high school reunions, I'm always surprised that the kids came back I never thought would come back. You know, my last uh, um, academy reunion, I graduated from Broadby, which is now closed in, in Illinois. And a um, few of us that live nearby gather every year, more gather more often. 
but one of the kids who was always in trouble, his nickname was Rebel. And it wasn't just a nickname, and he wasn't from the South. He was from Chicago. But we called him Rebel. In fact, he engaged in, in service um, when we were at Academy. Um, they always worried that we were faking when we were sick. So the first day we were sick, they wouldn't feed us. Anyone go to school like that? I don't recommend it. But they wouldn't feed us. Well, Rebel used to break into the cafeteria and gather food for the sick. Okay, he got in trouble for it. Uh, Rebel also confessed anything that was done. Now, I don't know, of course, I'm sure at your academy this never happened, but at my academy, uh, for example, if uh, someone put uh, sand in the dean's car, uh, we'd all stand outside until someone confessed. Do we still do that? You have to stand until someone confesses? I heard, no, we don't do that, okay. Well, yeah, but Rebel would always confess. You know, and so if the faculty voted someone most likely to be in prison, they'd have voted for him. Well, he turned out very well. Computer programmer for the American Medical Association in Chicago. Very fine, upstanding Christian guy. But we called him rebel, and the faculty called him rebel. He broke in to feed the sick. Now, that's an interesting, you know, is that community service if you break in to feed the sick? <laughs> well, I decided it was. I, uh, I'm an asthmatic. I was a very sickly child. Um, the doctor told my parents if I lived till 20, they'd be very fortunate. Um, I actually have a tracheotomy, my throat closed, and I can still have real problems. But I'm 65, and my doctor says I'm doing well. Um, and, you know, so I was sick a lot. I would get bronchial asthma, and um, they wouldn't let me eat. The rebel fed me. You know, he broke in and fed me. And again, I'm not sure how that all works in ethics and behavior, and I'm sure none of you in academies do that today. Also, if we didn't make our bed, they wouldn't let us eat. But I actually turned him into the health department and got a court order to make. Anyway, but they didn't know I did that. But we never give up. We're amazed at who God's Spirit works with. So the best circumstances, things happen. But because of the faith laid, because of parental bonding, because of a teacher connecting with that young person, they come back. They come back. So we have a number of references. Uh, and again, this will be available. Um, you know, Gary and I are academics, and um, one of the, um, you know, we publish in the church journals and ministry. Uh, one of the main things that I would hope you would look for, this is where Gary and I and others put this all together in the Medical Journal of Australia, eight evidence-based strategies preventing high-risk behavior. So much of our talk came from that, and uh, we hope that uh, you enjoy that and get something out of that. You know, Gary and I have worked together, how many years, Gary? 15 years, and we've enjoyed doing these research projects all over the world together, and hopefully we've learned a few things. But maybe one of the main things that we learned is that adults, churches, can make a huge difference in the community. You know, and that we should never get discouraged because not every kid turns out well. We have to look at the lifetime approach. You know, we have to look at the 40 years in the future. You know, kids who show up at the 40th alumni reunion that I didn't think uh, would show up, and they do and their lives are different and they're changed. Some of the wildest kids in academies become some of the greatest church leaders in their local community. So we never give up, we always pray. Remember that the Bible teaches us if one sinner on earth had existed, Jesus would have come and died for them. So we never give up, we always pray, we always hope, we always do what we can to strengthen the work of the Holy Spirit. And we know there's things that we can do from family, to church, to community, to service, to unconditional love, to bonding, to engaging, to knowing their names. That's how we can make a difference. And we leave it up to the Holy Spirit 
to work and bless our efforts to make a difference in the lives of young people and keeping them, engaging them, and bringing them back to the truth that we hold. All right, thank you. This media was produced by Audioverse for the NAD Health Summit. If you would like to learn more about the NAD Health Summit, please visit www.nadhealthsummit.com or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.